Let's turn together, please, to Genesis chapter 1 tonight. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to be doing a study of the book of Genesis. And the first 11 chapters are so foundational. And even within that, there's even more foundation on the first three chapters. And so tonight, we're going to be able to continue in our introduction. Last week, we started with Genesis 1.1. Tonight, we're going to read the entirety of the chapter, but there's some other foundational things that I want to lay for this study. Would you stand with me, please, with reverence for the Lord and His Holy Word? This is Genesis chapter 1. We're reading all the way down through chapter 2 and verse 3, which is really the, uh, the account of all that is given to us. I'll read aloud. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. Let them be for signs and seasons, for days and years. Let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. Then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the, of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, see, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed, 
To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it, he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. This is the word of the living God. Would you please be seated? Well, when you come to Genesis chapter one, there are so many foundational ideas that are here. And then there is not only a particular structure that is given to us, the first days of the heaven and the earth, the days of creation, but there's also repetitions, things that are repeated over and over again. And some of the main things that you would hear repeated over and over again would begin saying, and God said, and it was so. So speaking these things into existence and everything obeyed his command, that's something that's repeated day after day. It's also repeated that it was good. Everything that God had made was beneficial. All of it functioned in a right way. And eventually God would look at all that he had made and instead it was all very good. So that's a rep- repeated phrase and theme, the goodness of what God had done. We see repeated for us over and over again that it was all created according to its kind, whether it was the herbs, whether it was the trees, whether it was the animals, the birds, the fish, or even the beasts that are upon the earth, all of it was created according to its kind. That's going to be significant. It's going to be meaningful. And we're going to see how that God created all of these things, not to where there was transitional forms and things evolved and developed, but instead it was created as God intended. Not only was it good, but it's each according to its kind. And then there are important, really important themes, important themes such as when God blessed the earth and he said, you will have dominion over the earth and you will rule over the earth. And so man's dominion over the earth is going to be key. And the command that he gives to the creatures and to mankind when he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. We know that almost all key doctrines of the scripture have their foundation in the first three chapters of Genesis. The chapters of Genesis that tell us how it all began. It tells us that God is Lord, creator, master over all of it. We even have some of the foundational teachings about who God is. We find a complexity of God that he is Elohim, but he is not only the plurality of let us make man in our image, but there's also the singularity that God is single. He's, he's unified that God is one and all of that is established from the beginning. So when it comes to theology proper, our idea and view of God begins here. When it comes to Christology, we're going to have the first reference in the prophecy by which God would say that, uh, that there's going to be a seed of the woman that will come and destroy the seed of the serpent. And so we have this spiritual battle that's taking place and then an anticipation of a redeemer, someone who's going to come and deliver us. And so Christology has its basis beginning here. As a matter of fact, Christology and salvation would mean nothing because if you didn't have a federal head, and by that I mean Adam, who by one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. If you don't have the federal head, Adam, you cannot also have the, the headship of Christ, by which we find that just as through one man sin entered into the world, so also by the obedience of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ, can righteousness be given to many and the gift of God's grace. And so we find salvation is built upon the literal reading and the rendering of what's taking place in this passage. This is the beginning of the family. And so when any, we're going to have any view of, of male and female, husband and wife and children, 
It's going to all start in this passage. It's going to give us an understanding of our enemy, the devil. So when it comes to angiology, including our view of our enemy, the devil himself, then that is going to have its foundation. Genesis 1 through 3 becomes the foundation for everything else. I've already told you that when it comes to the scripture, it requires faith. Faith is uh, that which is required of God, and no one is able to come to God apart from faith. And our faith is tested from the very first verse of the scripture. If you can't believe Genesis 1-1, and if you can't believe the first three chapters of Genesis, then how in the world are you going to believe that God would send His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life? How are you going to believe that, uh, that not only do we have salvation in Christ, but how are you going to believe that we have ultimate victory and Christ is going to reign and rule? And not only is He the author of true creation, but He is also the author of this new creation that we are in Christ Jesus. In other words, what I'm doing is I'm trying to lay a foundation that tells you Genesis 1 to 3 is essential. It's important. It is not something to be argued away. It's not something to be embarrassed of. It is not something for us to, uh, to hide in shame. Uh, it is not something for us to be ignorant concerning. Genesis chapters 1 through 3 are something for us to take literally. It's for, something for us to take at face value. It is something for us to stand firmly upon. It is something for us to be confident in. And it is something for us to believe by faith. And yet, Genesis 1 through 3, as you might imagine, is the most attacked portion in all of the Scripture. You see, most people will come and they'll they'll give a nod to who Jesus is, and certainly the Golden Rule and the Ten Commandments, they think those are okay. Principles of loving one another and doing uh, unto others as you would have them do unto you, and being kind and gentle. And there are a lot of things about Scripture that people are willing to nod at and agree toward and really aren't offended by But when it comes to a reality that God is the one who created us, and therefore He is our authority, and we are to obey Him, we're to trust Him, we're to love Him, we're to walk in His ways, and again, we are to obey Him, that becomes something that humanity, in their rebellion, rejection of who God is, that is something that man continually resists. And that's why from Genesis chapter 1 and on through these first three chapters, there are many humanistic, worldly philosophies that will attack these very foundations. And because man, in his so-called wisdom, and by that I'm talking about, um, that, uh, by that I'm talking about uh, uh, educated man, I'm talking about the intelligentsia, I'm talking about a scientific man, I'm talking about man and his philosophy, I'm talking about man and their own wisdom, who in their wisdom of men, they don't know God, and so their wisdom becomes foolishness. In all of that wisdom of men, the people who are elite, the people who are great, the people who are intimidating to us are people who would come and they would tell us that this is all nonsense. And as a result, this passage is not only attacked by those who are unbelievers, naturalists, materialists, atheists, those who reject God and reject it of Scripture is not only attacked by those that are liberals, but it's something now that has come under attack by evangelicals, people who call themselves believers, people who call themselves Christians. And what happens is, in all of their positive uh, motivation and their desire to somehow defend the Scripture and not appear to be foolish, they somehow backtrack on all of this and say, ah, oh, well, you know what, this isn't, this isn't literally given. Instead, it's given to be uh, understood um, as imagery. It's something that is to be given in general terms by which all of these days of creation are literal days, but this is the means to emphasize to us that God is the one who's guided all of the development of nature, and that God has guided and overseen all of the development of matter and things of the sort. 
And so it's rare for us nowadays to find Christian colleges that would be able to stand upon a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 3. It seems that most Christian colleges are, again, trying to be accepted by the world and its system of values and human philosophy and human scientism and human understanding. Uh, But we come to this passage not intimidated. We come to this passage not ashamed. We come to this passage and we believe that God has given us his word. And if it can be taken at face value, it becomes a very, very important passage of Scripture, even though the attacks upon this passage of Scripture are so great. It deals with central philosophic questions. And I know that uh, we haven't come to this passage to read philosophy into it. But when you come to major philosophic questions, you'd understand that in the search and quest for wisdom and understanding, insight, there are really major questions, that are, three major questions that are being asked. What is real? What is reality that is around us? Is it only nature that is real? Is it only matter that is real? Uh, are we opposed to the natural and believe only in that which is uh, supernatural? Or is there some sort of supernatural belief by which we believe that there is God, but there is also that which he's created, nature? And so when it comes to the question of ontology, what is real, what truly exists, this passage deals with it. And it deals with it with this simple solution. In the beginning, God. God is ultimate reality. And so if God is ultimate reality, we as Christians don't deny space, time, and matter. We believe that space, time, and matter are all something that God himself created. But if God is ultimate reality, the one who creates all of these things, then we would look at nature and matter, and we would see them within the context of that which is supernatural. Therefore, believing that there is a God, we come with a presupposition, a a, a belief that we have beforehand that says we can believe that there's a supernatural inspiration of Scripture. This isn't something that has to be naturally uh, evolving through human processes because we reject the existence of God. Instead, we come and believe that God himself is ultimate reality. We reject naturalism. Naturalism is the predominant philosophy, maybe even the predominant religion of our day. Naturalism is the belief that all that exists is is nature. There is no soul. There is no miraculous. There is no supernatural. There is only nature. And naturalism is what leads to theories such as evolution and how we got here, how things are developing. And so naturalism is something that we reject. We also reject anti-naturalism. Anti-naturalism is kind of the new age idea that says, you know, you can't really trust the physical realm. You can't really trust our physical bodies. There is a, there's a supernatural that is above it. There's a spiritual. And we have to somehow get in touch with that spiritual in order for there to be any meeting to what is against us. And so we reject the new age, which is anti-natural. And we, re- we embrace what we call supernaturalism. God created all of these things, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect some other key questions. Philosophy not only asks the question, what is real, but philosophy also asks the question, how do we gain knowledge? Philosophy comes with what's called epistemology, and epistemology is basically how can knowledge be gained. If you're a naturalist, then you're also going to have to be a rationalist. A naturalist is someone that believes that only nature exists, and if only nature and matter exist then the way that you gain knowledge of that is through science and through scientific method and through rational thought. And so that's going to affect their idea of how you would gain knowledge. Everything is going to be gained by what you can test, poke, prod, what you're able to find with your senses. You can hear it, you can smell it, you can taste it, you can see it. Through observation, you gain knowledge. We come and we would say certainly that that kind of knowledge is valuable, 
But that kind of knowledge is only valuable in light of what we call revelation. And within revelation, we have believed that God has made himself known in a couple of ways. Number one, God has made himself known through the revelation of Scripture, but God has also made himself known through the revelation, the general revelation, that is the world around us. Let me quote a passage of Scripture for you again and again, reassure us. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no language or voice where they are not heard. In other words, all creation, the heavens above us, creation which beholds, holds all of the, the, the glory of God, creation around us tells us certain things about God. So we fully believe that we can use science in order to gain an understanding of these things. As a matter of fact, science makes far more sense for us as Christians and creationists and people that are holding to the Scripture than for those who believe that this all happened by random chance. If they think that it happened by chance and accident, then there is no structure, there is no design, there is no purpose. So science doesn't really make any sense if it's all happening and, and happening randomly. But if we believe that God in intelligence designed the world that is around us, then we believe that there are certain laws that he has given. And based on those laws that he has given, we can observe them, we can experiment with them, and we can gain knowledge and understanding through the scientific method. Christianity, as we approach Genesis chapter 1, is not opposed to true science. As a matter of fact, throughout history, some of the greatest scientists have been those who believe the Scripture and would hold to uh, creation and the literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 1 through 3. I have a great book. It's written by Henry Morris, who is a, he's a creation scientist, and so you know that he's going to be coming from that angle and approaching scientists themselves and giving the history and biography of scientists as being Christians. He's basically written a, a book called Men of Science, Men of God, and is subtitled Great Scientists Who Believe the Bible. This is something that I've recommended to our teenagers. It is, uh, I love biography anyway, and as I read biographies, I really like biographies that are about half a page long. And each of these biographies are really, really short, and they just give a little synopsis in a direction that says, you know, some of the great scientists of history, some of the ones who have discovered some are those who also believe that God himself designed this earth and order and structure, and therefore we can follow it. And so let me refer to a couple of people just to remind you that when we come to Genesis, we are not somehow anti-scientific. Instead, we believe that knowledge can be gained by studying the world that is around us because God created all of these things. And so we're going to begin with Leonardo da Vinci. Now, Leonardo da Vinci is best known for his paintings, but he is also a great engineer and an architect. And he was a great engineer and architect. He was able to analyze problems in dynamics, anatomy, physics, um, optics, biology, hydraulics, even aeronautics. And so he is well above his time or ahead of his time in all of these different things and his creativity and his understanding of these things. But what is also known or maybe lesser known is his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, his belief in the Scripture, and that is best evident in his great work of art, The Last Supper. And through his great work of art, The Last Supper, he's able to portray the Lord Jesus Christ with his disciples. So Leonardo da Vinci would be one of those who hold to the Scripture, loved creation, and then was able to study. There's another one, Kepler. Johann Kepler was the founder of physical astronomy. He was able to utilize the telescope to, that was developed by Galileo. He discovered the laws of planetary motion, 
uh, he was able to find the heliocentricity of the, of the solar system. In other words, all of the solar system revolves around the sun, and he was able to discover that and recognize it. He was able to track star motions, and tracking star motions, he was able to be one of the first who was able to predict eclipses, whether it was a solar or a lunar eclipse, because he was able to see that all of this was in structure and order. And what he did in astronomy was based upon this truth. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, or what Isaiah chapter 40 says, all of these things are known by God, they're named by God, they're kept by God, and there's structure to them. It was his astronomical studies that led him into a study of biblical chronology, and he believed that the world was created about 7,000 years ago, so he'd be a young earth creationist. Kepler wrote in one of his books, since we astronomers are priests of the highest God in regard to the book of nature, it befits us to be thoughtful, not of the glory of our minds, but rather above all else, the glory of God. Boy, how refreshing is that? Someone who's seeking not the glory of his mind, not trying to be recognized by others as intelligent and, and worthy, but instead he wants to give the glory of God as he studies all of the stars that are around us. You know the Frank Francis Bacon, and you recognize that Francis Bacon, he lived from 1561 to about 1626, so that's a long, long time ago. He was responsible for, for the formulation and establishment of the so-called scientific method. In other words, in science, he was able to stress experimentation and uh, induction from data. And so he'd look at data, refine the data, analyze the data, and through experimentation and uh, reproduction, he says that is how you discover science or scientific fact rather than the philosophical deduction that was in the tradition of Aristotle. So he basically introduced the scientific method to us. He also wrote, though, concerning the Scripture, that there are two books laid before us to study to prevent our falling into error. First, the volume of the Scriptures, which reveal the will of God. Then the volume of the creatures, which express His power. So he, too, recognized general and special revelation, general revelation through creation, and that is how we're able to understand the world that is around us. We see the power of God, but then also the Scriptures, and the Scriptures reveal to us the will of God. He had a confidence that the Scriptures are indeed truth. Blaise Pascal. I heard of Pascal. I heard of uh, different sorts of uh, geometry and different kind of things about Pascal. However, he was one of the great early philosophers and mathematicians. He's the father of the science of hydrostatics, hydrodynamics, he was able to discover a differential calculus, which, uh, in my opinion, became a curse to all of us. So uh, not only did he find differential calculus and the theory of probability, but he was also instrumental in the development of the barometer. So he certainly must have been some sort of atheist, right? No. Instead, he too was very involved with the Catholic Church and the commitment to the Scripture. And for him, he too recognized a creator of all things. Robert Boyle was another, the father of modern chemistry. As the father of modern chemistry, he had basic laws which he discovered related to gas pressure, to temperature, to volume, fundamental principles of gas dynamics. He was the greatest physical scientist of his generation, and he was also a humble, diligent student of the Bible. Bible translation work is something that he took much of the money that he had gained, gave himself to Bible translation work and the propagation of the gospel and missions. Here's another man who was a scientist, and yet he was a solid Christian committed to the studies of the Scripture. John Ray was someone else who in the uh, late 1600s and 1700s, he was committed to botany, the study of plants, and also zoology and the study of animals. He was committed to what he called natural theology, and chief in his studies of natural theology was a book called The Wisdom of God Manifested in the Works of Creation. He, too, recognized creation, that all of these animals created 
according to their kind, that this was God himself in doing it. Isaac Newton was coming much later, and in the age of Isaac Newton, he discovered the law of universal gravitation, three laws of motion, development of calculus. Isaac Newton was remarkable as far as a scientist, but he also believed that the worldwide flood of the Bible accounted for most of the geological phenomena. In other words, he wasn't embarrassed of what the Scripture said regarding a worldwide flood. Instead, he looked at the world that is around us right now, and the geological evidence, he would say, only points to what could happen only through a flood. And frankly, the more that I study science and even find more modern scientists, uh, I can go to um, the Garden of the Gods, and it seems absurd, the, uh, the deductions that they've come to. They say it takes millions, billions, and trillions of years of rain and wind, and I look at a little bit of wind and look, look at a little bit of rain, and I say, you know, that wind and rain doesn't really accomplish very much. And then I see a huge amount of rain, when I see a huge amount of water in a very small, brief period of time, man, it can do some serious damage. It can change some things. And so I would look at the Garden of the Gods as being evidence of, of a worldwide flood that is according to the Scripture. I would look at something like the, the Royal or the Grand Canyon. When you see the Grand Canyon, I don't look at that and say, wow, look what a little bit of water in the Colorado River can do over millions and billions and trillions of years. Instead, I'd look at that and say, well, look what a huge amount of water can accomplish in a very brief, quick period of time. I think I saw just a little bit of the formation of uh, the Grand Canyon today as we were driving home through some of all the rocks and things that were sliding off of the hills around us. So again, he was one who believed in a worldwide flood. He believed in a literal six-day creation. And he said, I find more sure marks of the authenticity in the Bible than in any profane history whatsoever. Isaac Newton had full confidence in the Scripture. If it's true for Isaac Newton, it can be true for you as well, my friend. I'm not telling you that you have to reject scientific method. I'm telling you that science and the true study of the world that is around us is profitable because God has revealed himself through creation, through the world around us. And through science, we are able to verify the authenticity of the scriptures, that God himself has given us a Bible that we can trust. And while we trust our mind and our ability to gain knowledge through scientific method, we also have a greater confidence in the scriptures themselves, and faith is greater than all of them. There's another man that I've read and really appreciated, uh, William Mitchell Ramsey, in 1851 to 1939, was instrumental when it comes to archaeology. As a matter of fact, he's one of the greatest archaeologists, and many of the books that I read concerning biblical archaeology have been written by Ramsey. Ramsey had started off as a liberal because of the education that he had received in liberal universities and his studies. It was only through archaeology that he was converted to true biblical Christianity. It was his archaeological discoveries in Asia Minor that verified and authenticated the book of Acts. And there were other passages where he had come and he'd say, all of what the Bible is saying is true. Ramsey would have been one of the ones in archaeology that discovered that the book of Daniel, while some uh, early liberals rejected the ideas of Daniel, said it's not historically accurate, it was through archaeology that we were able to discover that Daniel was right all along. And the names of the kings that he had been able to find and, and the, the uh, structure or the order, the chronology of those kings, it is archaeology that also is not an enemy of the Scripture. Instead, it becomes a friend. And here's the last one I'm going to mention. Werner von Braun. Werner von Braun is one that we respect because uh, he was the world's top, one of the world's top space scientists and in Germany, during World War II, he had uh, established the V-2 rocket, and then he immigrated to the United States and became critical 
in our missile development. He was also practicing Lutheran. And in a forward to an anthology on creation and design in nature, he gave this testimony. Listen to this. Manned spaceflight is an amazing achievement, but it has opened for mankind thus far only a tiny door for viewing the awesome reaches of space. An outlook through this peephole at the vast mysteries of the universe should only confirm our belief in the certainty of its creator. I find it is difficult to understand a scientist who does not acknowledge the presence of a superior rationality behind the existence of the universe as it is to comprehend a theologian who would deny the advances of science. So there are theologians who recognize advances and gains in knowledge and understanding. It's true. But scientists also are those who should see the creator in everything that is around them. I'm coming back and I'm telling you that through epistemology, how we gain knowledge, we gain knowledge not only in studying the world that is around us because God has created all of the world, but we have a greater revelation than the world that is around us. And that is the revelation of God through his word. Psalm 19 begins and says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows his handiwork. And then it continues and it says, but the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right. The testimony of the Lord is true and righteous altogether. In other words, he goes through and he compares in Psalm 19, general revelation is wonderful, it's good, it can be trusted. We can gain knowledge in that way. But we gain greatest knowledge, knowledge of intimacy with Jehovah God. We can gain that knowledge because God's word is truth. And because God's word is truth, we can completely trust this revelation that God has given to us. You consider this, John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And if you want to come to a a real understanding of what the truth is, here we have the scriptures given to us that reveal truth. Uh, I want you to turn with me to see a couple of passages in Psalm 119 that just help us to approach Genesis 1 with full confidence that God is speaking truth to us. Psalm 119, let's begin in verses 89 and 90, and then we'll see some others that verify the truthfulness of the Scripture. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth, and it abides In other words, there is a truth and a foundation and a stability. Look at Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all of my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. To your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Did you hear what he just said? He just told us that the greatest knowledge and understanding that he could ever gain is through the revelation that is God in his word. I can't understand why anyone would, re- would neglect the reading and study of Scripture to read some sort of technology magazine or some sort of science or especially some sort of, uh, oh, man, what is it? Some sort of fiction, scientific fiction novel. Man, you get all caught up with science fiction. You want to read all of this hocus-pocus gobbledygook, and you think, oh, ooh, ah. Why would, you, why would you forsake that which gains true wisdom, true insight, true understanding Oh, how I love your law. That's what, the, that's what the psalmist said, and I'd have to agree with him. 
This is the greatest place of wisdom and understanding and insight. And yet I confess to you, I confess that the Christian community is enamored with reading all sorts of other stuff. They read almost anything and everything. And they reject the simple revelation that God has given us in his word. And I'm telling you, if you are finding yourself in that pattern, then burn your newspaper, cancel your subscription to Sports Illustrated or Mechanical, whatever it may be, or Consumer Digest or whatever. For sure, cancel your subscription to all of your money magazine. Cancel all of that stuff and come back to a recognition that this is that which imparts wisdom and understanding and, and guidance. Give yourself to the study of Scripture. How about uh, Psalm 119, verses 137 through 144? This is another passage that emphasizes the truthfulness and the, and the faithfulness and the reliability of Scripture. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Your testimonies, which you have commanded, are righteous and very faithful. My zeal has consumed me because my enemies have forgotten your words. Your words are very pure Therefore, your servant loves it, and I, am, and I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and your law is truth. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. The righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding, and I shall live. Look at Psalm 119, verse 151. You are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Look at verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Have we established it well enough that we can trust the word of God simply based on its own testimony about itself? And from beginning to end, this is a book of truth and true epistemology. True knowledge is gained not just through rational understanding of the world that's around us. We don't reject that. We're not intimidated by it. We find that it confirms always, it confirms true science, truth in that is found in the world around. It confirms the truth and reliability of the Scripture. The Scripture does not have an enemy in science, is what I'm saying. However, science is not something that is the ultimate end. It is faith in the Scriptures themselves that gain us understanding. So if we believe that God has revealed himself generally in creation, he's revealed himself specially in the truth of the Scripture, understand he's also revealed himself in the truth of who Jesus is. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. God has revealed truth to us so that true knowledge, the gaining of that, knowing that which is real, is found in Jesus Christ. John 1, 14 talks about uh, law. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And verse 17 says the same thing. And then there's another passage, John 18, and I'd like to have you take a look at that or at least write it down. John 18 and verse 37, Jesus is before Pilate, and Pilate's asking him, are you a king? And he says, you rightly say that I'm a king. And he says, for this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. So here he's coming, and he's saying, I have come to bear witness and to give you the truth. And he says, if you are of truth, if you are of God, then you hear me and you know me and you follow me. Jesus Christ is absolute truth. How do we gain knowledge? We gain knowledge by the word of God. We gain knowledge by the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself. So question number one in philosophy, what is real? Genesis answers that. It answers it by saying that ultimate reality is God himself, the creator of everything. And that's why we are supernaturalists. We believe in the world 
But we also recognize that gaining knowledge, the question of epistemology, is gained through revelation because God has made himself known. God has given us revelation through scripture. He's given us revelation through the world that is around us. And then there's a third question. How did what is real begin? It's called the question of cosmology. Cosmology says that if, how do we discover or how do we, how did it all begin? And here's what I want you to know. The question of how it began is always a question of philosophy. It is never a question of science. I want to address an issue that is not only the issue of naturalism, but naturalism is the assumption that nature or matter has always existed, and there is no supernatural. There is no God. And if you would look at that, then you would say, well, how, how did all of this begin? And if you're a naturalist, you would have to come up with some explanation how this began that would exclude God and it would exclude creation. Therefore, naturalists have come up with the idea and the theory of evolution. However, evolution is not a scientific theory, meaning that it's not something that is observable. It's not reproducible. Uh, you can't, uh, you can't obs- you, no one was there. We weren't able to observe it. So, in other words, how all of it began through the process of evolution is not science, it is philosophy. And scientism has basically become a false belief, a false human uh, confidence that says, ah, the ultimate knowledge and the ultimate truth and the ultimate confidence that we can have in the truth of something is because of science. Science tells us all of these things. But scientism can never answer this question of how things began in a scientific manner. In other words, here's what I'm telling you that those who are uh, followers of scientism, and by I'm taking scientist and scientism different. A scientist is someone who follows the uh, process of the scientific method through observation. Scientism is someone who would say that you can gain theological knowledge, rational knowledge, you can gain ethical knowledge uh, through science itself, and the science informs all of those things. However, their most basic questions of how we began cannot be observed. Therefore, it's not following the scientific method. It's back to philosophy. And so it's a kind of a self-contradicting argument that they have. And what we would do is we would come and we would say that all of us have a certain presupposition. A presupposition is something that you can't prove. It is not something that you can observe. Instead, a presupposition is something that you take by faith. And if you're a naturalist, you start with a presupposition that said nature is all that exists. And here's really a problem that they have is that they say matter is eternal. So if they believe that matter is eternal, that becomes really non-scientific, becomes a significant problem for them. But if matter is eternal, nature is all that exists, then through evolution or some form of evolution, that is how it all begins, and that's how we get to where we are. It's all by a random chance. I look at that, and I look at their presupposition, and I would say, man, that takes an awful lot of faith. That is someone who's pretty much taken a, a blindfolded shot in the dark, and they're throwing a dart and hoping for the very best. I mean, it takes some real faith to think that all of this happened by random chance and by accident. We also confess that the scientific, it is not scientific that we're able to prove that all of this began by creation. Instead, we come with a presupposition that says there is a God, and he has revealed himself. And because there is a God who revealed himself, he is the only witness who can tell us how it all began. So we're coming back to eyewitness testimony. And the eyewitness testimony is God himself who said, this is how it all began. God spoke, and it was so. God said, and it was so. And God continued to speak, and in every situation all the way along the line, God is the one who initiated it, and God spoke, and it happened. 
Now, when I come to Genesis with a presupposition and understanding that God is the one who started all of these things, I don't need to impress. I don't need to be uh, intimidated by. I don't need to somehow appease the naturalists and the anti-theologists. I don't need to appease them. Instead, I come back and I recognize that my presuppositions are a whole lot better. It's more sound. I have a solid ground to stand upon. And when I stand upon this ground, then I would say Genesis, as it is written, according to face value, if I take it literally and solidly, then I would say there is a creation that is a literal six-day creation as he goes through. These aren't ages by which he's saying, oh, this is really describing the whole evolutionary process. And somehow God guided all of that evolutionary process. I'm telling you, you have to impose that upon the text. You take this for what it says, and it is talking about literal days. How do we know it's literal days? He says morning and evening, the morning and evening that we know and understand, a morning and evening that are governed by the sun and the moon that he created. And if he created the sun and moon, even though it was a, you know, later in, as far as the creation time, he created the sun and moon. The sun and moon were governing the days and the months and the years and the seasons. And if it was governing the days, then we have morning and evening day. Morning and evening day is telling us that this is a created day. If it's a created day, then we also have a week. And that week that is given to us is the seven-day week. And all based on that seven-day week, we have our seven-day work week. Six days we work, seventh day we rest. This has been the tradition, has been the pattern, has been the development of all mankind living according to it. We have a literal week that's being described, a literal week made up with literal days. And we'll go into this a little bit more, but I'm coming and telling you that as we study this passage and go and begin going through those days, we're going through with an understanding that God has spoken. God has revealed these things. We can take it literally, take it at face value. We're not intimidated by all of the philosophies of this world. As we study this book, we have full confidence that this is the word of God, and we don't back down from it at all. Please bear with me and understand that the message tonight was not one of those verse-by-verse messages where we normally go through. Instead, we had to lay a foundation. And having laid a foundation a little bit, we're able to come and we're able to say that philosophical approaches to what is real How do you know, as far as those things, how do you gain knowledge of what is real? How did that which is real begin? All of that is answered in this passage, and it all points us to the reliability, truthfulness of the Scripture, and it tells us that we can stand firmly upon it. Nothing being embarrassed, nothing to be ashamed about, but standing firmly upon this. And so I hope some of you are saying, yeah, right, man, we need to stand firm. I hope that you're standing with that kind of confidence, because the truth is most of the Christian community in America today does not have that confidence. They're wavering. They're running backwards. And because of that, they're trying to come up with all sorts of humanistic, man-made ways of surviving and functioning. They're trying to create morality based something without the authority of Scripture. They're trying to figure out how do we, uh, how do we grow? How do we minister to the coming generation? They have to come up with all of it based on no confidence in Scripture. Friends, we can have a full confidence in Scripture. And if you can have full confidence in Scripture, then you can say with the, with the psalmist, you can say with Psalm 119, verse 89, had said, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You establish the earth, and it abides forever, O Lord. Your word is settled in heaven. Wow, that's encouraging to me. Lord, I pray For our young people, some of whom are going to school this week, and they might have their faith being attacked by those that are philosophical humanists or those that are naturalists or those who have rejected your word. 
Lord, they don't need to be intimidated. Instead, they can say forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. It is absolute truth. This is how God has revealed and made himself known. And through your word, I have more understanding than all of my teachers. O Lord, give our students that confidence. I pray, Lord, that all of us as Christians, all of us that are gathered here together would have such a love and hunger for your word that we would make it our meditation all the day. And as we love your law and meditate upon it, that we would have the firm confidence that your word is right and true and good. In Jesus' name, amen.